Chapter Sixteen of Forest Days by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen. In the old castle of Hereford, which, according to the account of Leland, was one of the largest and finest specimens of the military architecture of feudal times, were numerous courts and various detached buildings, so that the number of persons which it could contain was immense, and even when several hundred men were within the walls, many of the open spaces and passages would be found silent and solitary. Thus, on the evening of Hudemothema's visit, the chief court, the halls, and the corridors around it, were crowded with not less than seven or eight hundred persons, but as one turned one's steps to other parts of the building, the throng decreased, the passers to and fro became fewer and more few, and at length nothing presented itself but untenanted courts and empty arcades. In a dark corner of a long passage, which, traversing one side of the keep under open cloisters, passed through a large mass of buildings, receiving no light but that which poured in at either end, and, after being joined by two other arched corridors, led out into the court in which Prince Edward's lodging was situated, in a dark corner of this long passage stood two men, engaged in earnest conversation, just about the time that Hugh de Mothama quitted the Earl of Leicester. They were both covered with large cloaks, and both had their hoods drawn far over their heads, so that it would have been very difficult for any one to recognise them, unless well acquainted with their air and figure. Nevertheless, they did not seem to feel themselves secure, for the instant that they heard a step coming from the direction of the principal court, they walked on a few paces and then turned into one of the lateral passages, near the mouth of which they again paused and resumed their conversation in a low tone. A moment after, the tall, graceful figure of Hugh de Mothama passed across, without appearing to excite their attention, so earnest were they in the matter they were discussing. He, however, turned his head and looked at them steadily, but still walked on without slackening his pace. "'Some means must be found,' said one, the shorter and the slighter of the two. "'Some means must be found, and that right speedily, or our chance is lost.' "'You must have been playing some of your accursed tricks, Richard,' replied the other, "'or de Montfort never would have taken such a step. "'The House of Ashby is of too much importance to any cause that its members espouse,' for even the lowest branch to be treated with indignity, without some strong occasion. "'Nonsense, Alured, I did nothing,' replied the other. "'I tell you, it was solely and simply upon this old Mothma's charge against me.' "'On your life and honour," demanded his companion. "'On my life, honour, soul, and salvation,' replied the other. "'Well, then, I am glad of it,' said the taller speaker. "'I am glad that it has happened.' for first i will take care it shall rouse my father's anger against de montford and secondly it shall stir him up against these mothamers and i trust induce him to break with them both at all events it will make him forgive my joining gloucester so i repeat i am glad that it has happened i cannot say as much rejoined the first speaker i never care for my part alured about an excuse for anything i am about to do Oh, there is many a convenient point in having a bad reputation. Men do not expect too much of you, without anybody wondering, and then, when you are in humour and perform two or three good actions, 
Lord, how you are praised! But to the point, what can be done now? How can we give him intimation of the scheme? Oh, my life, I know not, said the other. Could you not bribe some woman? demanded the taller and more powerful of the speakers. They would not stop a woman, I suppose. Right, right, cried his companion. You have put me on the track, and I will not miss my game. But can you engage any woman you can trust? asked the other. It must not be some common hireling, some minstrel's wench, some follower of city fairs. Leave it to me, cried the shorter man. If I cannot engage, I can make her, and that ere another hour be over. There is no time to be lost. Farewell for the present, for I must away from Hereford to-night. And if you intend, good Allurid, to hatch a quarrel with my noble Lord Hugh, let it be speedy, for I do not think that twenty-four hours will be over ere I have repaid him some trifles that I owe him. I have some plans in my head as well as you, so fare you well once more. And thus they parted. In the meanwhile, Hugh de Mothama sped upon his way, traversed the other court and approached a door, at which stood two or three of de Montfort's officers, guarding closely, though with an appearance of profound respect, the only entrance to the apartments of Prince Edward. While he showed the pass which he had received, and mounted the long, narrow staircase, we shall take leave to precede him, for a few minutes, to the apartment of the prince. It consisted of a suite of several rooms, all reached by the same ascent, and was in itself as convenient and comfortable as any abode can be, from which free egress is denied us. The principal chamber was a large and lofty one, with two wide windows situated in deep bays looking over the fair scene around. The casement was open, and seated on a large chair with his feet resting on a stool, sat the captive prince, gazing down upon a part of the town of Hereford and the meadows and orchards beyond. The apple trees were all in blossom, and every shrub in the manifold gardens had put on the blush of vegetable youth, promising rich food in the maturity of the year. Beyond the meadows and the orchards came slopes and rising ground, and lines of deep wood, sheltering the intervening space, and then high hills were seen, fading off into the sky. On the left hand the scene was all open, but on the right an angle of the cathedral, as it then appeared, bounded the view, while the tower of another church of inferior dimensions rose up under the eye and cut the long straight lines of the houses and other buildings. Edward leaned his head upon his hand and gazed, while at a little distance from him sat a gentleman, somewhat younger than himself, looking upon him from time to time with a glance of deep interest, but keeping silence out of respect for the prince's musing mood. The soft air of summer wafted to the window the scent of the blossoms from the fields beyond, and Edward thought it spoke of liberty. Up rose from the streets and houses of Hereford the manifold sounds of busy life, the buzz of talking multitudes, the call, the shout, the merry laugh of idle boyhood, and still to the captive's ears they spoke of liberty. The bells from the cathedral joined in and rang complines, and turning his eyes thither, he thought how often he had heard those sweet tones, at even close, in the happy days of early youth, returning from the chase or any other of the free sports of the time. His sight wandered on, over tower and spire, round which the crows were winging their airy flight, 
to the deep woods and blue hills flooded with glory from the declining sun. Still, still, it all spoke of liberty, and Edward's heart felt oppressed, his very breathing laboured, as he remembered the mighty blessing he had lost. It was like the sight of a river to a dying man with thirst in the sands of Africa, without the strength to reach it. He gazed, and perhaps for a moment might forget himself, and his hard fate, in a dream of enjoyment. But if he did, it lasted not long. The dark reality soon came between him and the light of fancy, and letting his head droop, he turned away with a deep sigh, and gave up a brief space to bitter meditation. Then, rising from his seat, taller by many an inch than the ordinary race of men, he threw back his magnificent head and his wide shoulders with a sorrowful smile, saying, "'I will walk up and down my chamber, declare, and fancy I am free.' "'I hope you feel better, my lord, to-night,' said young Thomas de Clare, the Earl of Gloucester's brother. "'Yes, good faith,' replied the prince, "'I am better. The fever has left me, but nothing will make me truly well but open air and strong exercise.' "'However, I am better, and I thank you much, for I believe you love me, declare, although you make yourself a sort of willing jailer to me.' The young gentleman bent his head without reply, though there was a faint smile upon his lip which might have puzzled Edward had he seen it, and after a moment or two declare said, somewhat abruptly, "'Now I could wager your grace is strong enough to ride some twenty or thirty miles if you were at liberty to do so.' "'A hundred, answered Edward quickly and then added more slowly, "'Were I at liberty?' At that moment someone knocked at the door, and on being told to come in, Hugh de Mothama entered. The face of the prince instantly brightened. "'Ah, Mothama!' he cried. "'Right glad am I to see you, my friend. "'Yes, my friend, for all these factious times "'shall never make us enemies, "'though we draw our swords on different sides.' This is my state apartment, Hugh, and that staircase by which you came hither, the extreme limit of my principality. I wonder that de Montford suffered you to see me. I almost wondered myself, my lord, said Hugh de Mothama, for my request was coupled with a remonstrance against your imprisonment. And yet, added the prince, you will remonstrate, but not aid to free me. My lord, I cannot without treason, replied Hugh de Mothama. "'Treason to whom?' demanded Edward, somewhat sharply. "'Treason to the land, my lord,' answered Hugh de Mothama, "'and to those rights which I know, when you are king, "'you will yourself willingly respect. "'I do beseech you, my dear lord, "'press me not harshly on a matter where I can make but one reply. "'You are here by the will of four and twenty noble gentlemen, "'appointed lawfully.' "'And by the mees of Lewis,' added the prince bitterly, but say no more, Mothama. I do believe that if your voice might prevail, I should soon be at liberty. Upon my life you would, replied the young nobleman. Indeed, you never should have been otherwise, for I would have taken your word, your plighted word, to maintain the rights of Englishmen, and to aid in no act against them, and would have set you free at once. Well, it matters not, answered the prince. Perhaps it is better as it is. I know not what I might have promised to buy my liberty, if men had asked me. But now, though fettered in body, I am at large in mind, and events may yet come to open stronger doors than that. 
"'How fares it with your good uncle?' he continued. "'He has been somewhat harsh and sudden with his king, "'but still he is a noble gentleman, "'and one of whom England may well be proud.' Eudemothema answered in general terms, "'and the conversation, having then taken a turn away "'from painful subjects of discussion, "'reverted pleasantly to brighter themes. "'Their boyish hours rose up before their eyes, "'the sports, the pastimes,' The gay thoughts and heedless jests of youth were recollected. Edward's countenance unbent, his eyes sparkled, his lips smiled. The prison and its cares were forgotten, and for the time he seemed to live once more in the sweet early days of which they spoke. The conversation proceeded almost entirely between the prince and Hugh de Mothema, for though Thomas de Clare added a word or two now and then, they were but few, and only served to break through one of those momentary pauses which would have given thought time to return from the pleasant past to the sad present. The sun was, as I have said, going down when Hugh de Mothema entered the prince's chamber, and ere he had been there half an hour the bright orb had sunk beneath the horizon. But in these northern climes heaven has vouchsafed to us a blessing which brighter lands do not possess, the long, soft twilight of the summer evening and the sky was still full of light, so that one might have read with ease in the high chamber of the prince, nearly half an hour after the star of day had disappeared. It was just at that moment that Hugh, who was sitting with his face towards the door, saw it open slowly, and a beautiful girl, dressed in somewhat gay and sparkling attire, even for those gaudy times, entered with a noiseless step, bearing a small basket in her hands. An expression of some surprise on the young lord's countenance made Edward himself turn round, and the sight suddenly produced signs of greater amazement in his face than even in Hugh de Mothema's. He rose instantly, however, saying, "'What would you, my fair lady?' "'Nothing, royal sir,' replied the girl, "'but to bring your grace this small basket of early strawberries. "'You will find the flavour good,' she added, "'especially at the bottom,' where they have not been heated by the sun. As she spoke, she put down the basket on the table and was retreating quickly, but Edward exclaimed, Stay, stay, pretty one. Tell me who you are, that I may remember in my prayers one who has thought upon her captive prince and striven to solace him in his imprisonment. It matters not, replied the girl, curtsying low, and speaking evidently with a country accent. It matters not. I promised not to say a moment, but to give the strawberries and to come away. God send your grace a happy even and a happy morning to boot. And thus saying, she retired, closing the door carefully behind her. This is strange, said the prince, taking up the basket and turning towards Hugh de Mothema. But the young lord was buried in deep meditation. You seem surprised, Mothema, said the prince. "'And, faith, so am I, too. "'I never saw the girl in all my days. "'Did you declare?' "'Never,' replied the young noble. "'Methinks I have,' observed Hugh de Mothema gravely, "'and that many a mile hence. "'But I will leave you, my lord. "'The gates will soon be shut.' "'Nay, stay, and take some of this sweet food,' said Edward, "'which has been brought me, not by ravens, but by doves.' "'Not so, sir,' replied Hugh, staying the prince's hand, as he was about to empty the basket on the table. "'May the fruit prove propitious to your grace and to England.' 
Adieu, my lord. And thus saying, he quitted the room abruptly. He is right, he is right, cried Thomas de Clare. There is more than fruit in that basket, or I am much mistaken. Edward laid his hand upon it firmly, and fixed a keen and searching gaze upon the young nobleman, saying, "'Whatever there be in it is mine, and for my eye alone, Thomas declare.' But his companion passed round the table, bent one knee before him, and kissing his hand respectfully, said, "'My noble lord and future king, you have mistaken me, but it is now time to tell you that I am no jailer. If I be not very wrong, there are in that basket tidings which shall soon set you free as the wind. I have already gained from Stern de Montford permission for you to ride forth, accompanied by six gentlemen of his choosing, and followed by a train of spears. I said that it was the only means of restoring you to health. I might have added, had I pleased, and to liberty. Now, my lord, see what that basket does contain, and believe me, if it cost me my head to keep your secret, I would not reveal it. Thanks, declare, thanks, replied Edward. We often suspect the honest of being guilty. But this time suspicion has taken a different course, and I have long suspected thee of being honest. Now suppose all your hopes are false. And he overturned the basket on the table. Nothing fell from it except the fruit, but fastened to the bottom by a piece of wax appeared... On closer inspection, a small billet folded so as to take the form of the basket. It was speedily drawn forth and opened, as the reader may suppose, but the first words which met the eye of the prince puzzled him not a little. The note was to the following effect. My lord, one of your horses has been stolen from your stable, namely the bright bay Norman charger, but as some compensation in its place has been put a large-boned, long-legged grey. He is not beautiful to look upon, though a skilful eye will see fine points in him. But he is strong and enduring, and no horse in Europe can match him for speed. Your lordship may try him against what horse you will. You will be sure to win the race. And should you be disposed to try to-morrow, you will find spectators in Monington Wood, who will receive you at the winning post. Mark this, for it is from a friend. Would that I knew his name, cried Edward, as he concluded the letter. I can tell you, my lord, replied Thomas de Clare, it is Richard de Ashby. Ha! said Edward, as if not well pleased. Ha! Richard de Ashby! He is a faithful subject of my father's, I believe, but that is all the good I know of him. However, I must not be ungrateful. Hark! There is a step upon the stairs. Get the fruit into the basket, quick! And, concealing the note, Edward cast himself into the chair which he had previously occupied. Declare had scarcely replaced the strawberries and set down the basket, when a heavy, stern-looking man, one of the chief officers whom the Earl of Leicester had placed in attendance, as he called it, upon the prince, entered the room with a silver dish in his hand. "'Seeing that a fair lady has carried you some strawberries, my lord,' he said, "'I have brought you a dish to put them in.' And, taking the basket, he emptied it slowly into the silver plate. "'Thanks, Ingleby, thanks,' replied the prince, with a look of total indifference as to what he did with the fruit. "'Methinks if you had brought me some cream also, it would have been as well.' 
"'Your lordship shall have it immediately,' answered the officer. "'They are fine berries, so early in the season.' "'They will refresh me after the fever,' said Edward, "'for still my mouth feels dry.' "'You shall have the cream directly, my good lord,' rejoined the officer, and left the room. Edward and de Clare looked at each other with a smile, and the note was soon re-read and totally destroyed. End of chapter 16